0: You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 16.
1: Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So, please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall.
0: Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Sam Gikandi, the CEO and co founder of Africa's Talking, a pan African mobile technology company empowering developers across the continent. Prior to Africa's Talking, Sam worked for Morgan Stanley, the investment bank, in the US and Hong Kong. In the Asia office, he helped build the high-frequency trading platform and led a team trading hundreds of millions of dollars per day. In 2010, intrigued by the burgeoning tech scene in his home country of Kenya, he set up with a co-founder, Africa's Talking. While it started as a side hustle, Two years later, Sam took a full-time COO, CTO role in the company, developing the software developer-facing aspect of the business. As demand for business APIs in Kenya exploded with the strong growth of tech startups and mobile money payment solutions, Africa's talking software developer business also took off. The company turned profitable only after one year of operations. Africa's Talking helps the growing software developer community across the continent integrate into the telecoms infrastructure by simplifying the required processes and technologies. It offers APIs for short codes, payments, and communications, including bulk SMS, USSD, and voice. Africa's Talking is in seven African markets with its hub based in Nairobi, Kenya. Last April, Sam and his team closed an $8.6 million fundraising round that was led by the IFC's venture Capital Arm, which Africa's talking will use to further its expansion, especially into Francophone West Africa. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Sam, who's a real thought leader. Sam explains why he's bullish on Ethiopia, why capital is overrated in the early stages of a startup, and why he advocates sharpening your toolkit before diving headfirst into entrepreneurship. So make sure you listen to our entire chat. As always, you can check out the show notes on yaepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sam Gikandi. Sam, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's a pleasure to have you here.
2: Yeah, great to be here.
0: So I'd love to know, Sam, what inspired you to become an entrepreneur?
2: I think for me, it was more by mistake, to be honest. So I I went to college in the U.S. and uh, worked in the U.S. uh, in, in investment banking and and uh, around that time, we formed Africa Stalking with Eston, uh, um, who was in Kenya at the time.
0: And that's your co-founder.
2: Yeah, that's my co-founder. Okay. Um, and at the time, it was very. It was just almost like an adventure for us, you know. Like let's let's form a company in the tech sector that will start looking at opportunities there. Uh, we thought there would be opportunities in uh, e-commerce, um, helping shopkeepers access global markets and and then we pivoted to group buying so concept similar to Groupon all this time I was actually working full-time in um, in the U.S. And, and then later in Hong Kong so for me it was it was more of just an exciting thing that I knew I you know I had a job so it wasn't out of necessity per se it was more of okay so let's now that we have all this experience, um, you know, I've been working in tech for a few years. Like, let's see what we can do for, you know, for the continent. So, about two and a half years later, so I, I left my job in Morgan Stanley in 2012 and decided to give this like a proper go. So I moved back to Kenya from Hong Kong and, um, yeah, and really just started looking at uh, what the company was doing. And by that time, we had pivoted to mobile and. And I kind of played more of a COO role initially, like really uh slash CTO, like really helping the business, you know, build its technology platform and understanding the local landscape and basically leveraging my experience in in the industry to just make things a bit more organized and see if we could build something that would deliver consistent revenues and yeah, and in the long run make a viable business. So I I don't I don't think there was anything I can really point to and say, you know, when I was growing up, I really want, no, I I, I think for me, it just, I just, things worked out the way they did. And, and then incredible timing meant that we started solving a problem that people are willing to pay for, uh, back in 2012. Yeah. And since then it's, it's just been a consistent and systematic build out of the company and the platform. And yeah. And, um, uh, as I say, the rest is history. So yeah, I, I can't I can't really place like one thing that, you know, that, that I can say that, you know, in my high school or in, in my college or something like this really made sense. Um, it's just how things played out. And yeah, and, but it's been fun. And um, yeah, definitely do it again.
0: OK, uh, th- there's a lot to unpack here. So um, I wanted to briefly touch uh, on your previous your previous career uh, working in investment banking. Um, as you mentioned, uh, you were working with Morgan Stanley and you were there for about six years after you graduated from university in the US. And what were the major lessons, if any, that you learned from the bank that you've been able to apply to your career as an entrepreneur?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, yeah. So I think working in, working in a place like Morgan Stanley teaches you that... Anything is possible because, um, especially, I, I think for me, I, I can really point to the last two years of my career there, where I was working in this high-frequency trading group that um, was about eight engineers handling about two billion dollars worth of trades every day oh, uh, wow. across across three continents. And and really just seeing things working at that scale for me was it was very eye-opening. And obviously, the technical. Uh, side of it, like I had great mentors, so I worked with some very experienced engineers, uh, some of them in their forties were still writing software and building stuff um, and you know the whole culture was around let 's get things done um, they, it wasn 't around you know politics and all these other things so for me that was that was very that was very eye opening and then so I started out in New York, team of about thirty total in the group and then they wanted to now start the the same the same platform that we had. We wanted to roll it out in Asia. So I decided to move to Hong Kong, um, joined a team of three and um, and was really the person that was driving the business forward. Um, so I started now seeing the other side of code because I feel like engineers sometimes get thrown into one side of okay, so you guys are supposed to execute. Um, and you're supposed to write code and you know get this thing done. Uh, so I went from that to actually making decisions. And every day you're told, so today you have 50 million dollars, and you know, and you need to turn it into profits for the for the group. Um, and you have to make a lot of decisions. Uh, you have to interface with different teams. Uh, you have to lead now, um, and you're leading, and you're not just exposed to the technology; you're exposed to The business side, and I think that was very—that was actually very formative. Um, So it was—it was like about two years of very intense, a very intense boot camp around how to build a large, scalable technology platform in a high-pressure environment that requires coordination across different parts of a company that can actually get things done for you. So it was a good learning curve, yeah. And uh, and 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 I think that's what really. Gave me the confidence when, you know, when we came in and we found a problem that was worth solving, um, you know, we gave me the confidence to say, you know what, we can solve this across Africa. We can we can add more products. We can support more clients. And yeah. And since then, it's, you know, I I think I think it was very important.
0: No, that that makes sense, because like you said, if you're working on that type of scale of where you have a team of 8 engineers who are handling 2 billion dollars worth per day it, it totally changes your mindset you exactly, start to yeah. think in very you know in, in a broad scope and i mean i i'm interested to know kind of psychologically since you said you were handling trades yourself how did you how did you handle psychologically losing money because I think, I think that's very painful. I mean, personally speaking, I've, I've, I've been in that situation where I've lost money on, okay, physical commodity trades, uh, trades, and I found it very difficult to handle in the beginning. But it's an inevitable part of trading. So, and then of course, that's a great skill to bring into running your own business.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I will say that we, so, so we were, so we're doing high frequency trading and it's, it's driven by machines and by, uh, very short horizons. So you find that you're mostly winning. It was actually mostly, you're mostly on a high of winning. Um, because what you will, what you will do is you'd write your software so that the moment that you sensed that you were going to lose, you pull out and, you know, and then you, and then you would play across A lot of different securities, so you 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 know you start trading about three hundred names, and and by the end of it all, you started getting a sense of when you are gonna win and when you are gonna lose. And a year into it, you find that you're mostly winning, Um, and that was very exciting. Um, I have to say, I mean, it it was one of those perfect confluence of technology and business and profitability that was just amazing to watch. Um, And for me, also like having that intimate knowledge of the technology meant that. You had a very good sense of why things were happening or why things were going the way that they were going, um, and that 's something that i've actually carried over to the business because i 'm heavily involved in the te- in building out the technology and uh, to the extent of even writing software, reviewing code, uh, working closely with the engineers because I feel like that that kind of gives you a sense of control that reports and you know meetings are just not going to give you
0: well and, and and if I can cut in here sam you you mentioned that you first started off kind of as a, you know, in a COO, CTO role. And now you're right. CEO of the company. So when was that transition?
2: Um, so the transition was around 2015, about three years into the business. And so initially the business had about five different products that we were running. And some of the products were consumer facing um, in the sense that we would sell them directly to businesses and and then we had the API platform, which which is developer facing. Um, so this is a platform that allows developers to create solutions that they can then sell to the business. So it's more of a B two B two C play. And increasingly, we are starting to see that there there's a bit of tension between where the company should focus. Um, so should we focus on the consumer opportunity, which I will admit is more revenues upfront, or should we focus on the developer opportunity, which is kind of Along a longer burning fire, but in the long run can also be very lucrative. And those are the kinds of conversations that eventually led us to decide, you know what, let's let's actually, we, we have these products, they have clients, they're making money. So why not hive those off into a separate company that's going to be focused on pushing them um, and then allow Africa's talking to focus on developers. So focus on just creating services that empower developers instead of creating services that, uh, developers are, can create. And that's where my co-founder uh, formed a separate business and took the products that were not developer-facing. And and then I was left now with uh, the developer-facing side of it. Um, and I think part of that, it was an easy conversation because I have a technical background and and he doesn't. So it was easy for me to even articulate or grow the business because it's when you sell to developers, it's it's actually important that you are a developer. When you're building this kind of technical business, then uh, having a technology background is actually important. Whereas for him, he was more naturally inclined to think about consumer-facing opportunities and you know, customer experiences and you know, that, kind of, um, you know, that kind of opportunity that uh, the company was clearly not going to pursue as aggressively as, as we were at the developer side.
0: Okay. So I'm going to take things back just a little bit. Um, pre 2015, where you split into these do, two different services or two different businesses. Right. Um, and you, you had mentioned at the top that, you know, when you first started the company with your co-founder, you thought you'd focus on the e-commerce space. And from what I read is that you had contacts at a tech hub that really persuaded you to focus on APIs. So, w- what was the backstory there?
2: Right. Um, yeah. So, so what happened was in 2012. Actually, we were about to shut down the business, but uh, we we got into this accelerator in San Francisco. Um, Which one? And, uh, it's it was called Hub Ventures. It's now called Better Ventures and basically the so we went there with three products so two products that were in the market so one was kind of a google for gmail for sms that's that's how we we thought about it um so it's called sms leopard that would essentially help businesses upload contacts and send out uh, sms messages the same way you'd log into gmail and send out emails um the other one was or we thought of as a Twitter for SMS. Uh, So it was called SMS Voices, and the whole idea was uh, helping people, helping bring people's voices online. So, you know, so if you sent an SMS to our short code or our phone number, then we'd organize it online in the same way that Twitter organizes um, tweets, so to speak. Um, And of course, that was very, the fact that we called it Gmail and Twitter meant that We were thinking that these are billion-dollar opportunities. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) um, But then at the same time, we we used to get a lot of clients that would come in and be like, yeah, you know, I love this uh, SMS Leopard platform that you have. And basically what I would like is I would like to integrate it to my website because I have all these customers. And, you know, I'd like to send SMSs from my website. Or a more concrete example, was a client came in and said, "I want to run this survey, and I want it to update my website in real time as people respond. Um, so I want to see how many people are saying yes, how many people are saying no." And then, so then that meant that we started building all these custom solutions. So we, you know, build a website for this guy, build a dashboard for this other guy. So we started thinking about how can we empower this people to build those platforms Um, and that's where we the third product that we were thinking about we were not really we didn't really have a proper roadmap for it but we were just like we just tossed it around like hey we're also thinking of building a platform for developers where they can log in and essentially integrate the functionality that we're already selling into their own businesses and Immediately, the the investors were like, "Look, you have to do that." And you know, it was a lot of back and forth because we, we were the other two products were actually making money, and we wanted to like go hard after them and really get them across Africa and you know create this Gmail or this Twitter that's like new and you know running on SMS. But they really insisted that we should build a developer API.
0: But why did they insist on that? Like, why were they so gun ho for the the API development?
2: I think it's because the the that was 2012 and the developer the developer angle was just starting to make sense in the US um so that was a time when companies like Twilio uh were making waves building communication services for developers Stripe was also just coming up. I think Stripe was about two years old at the time. And the buzz around Silicon Valley then was, you know, this whole API thing actually has a lot of potential. So I can see where they were coming from. Because for us, it was hard to make that same argument because we just think about, so who will be our customer? Like who will teach these developers? Uh, how to use this API thing. Um, like, how will we even sell it? It was, it was pretty hard to see how that was going to make sense. But they insisted. Uh, you could say they were right or they were wrong. Um, now, with hindsight, you can say they were right. It could also have been that our Twitter for SMS will have taken off. <laughs> Who knows? Right.
0: Um, <laughs> Counterfactual. But
2: <laughs> yeah, but they, but they really liked the developer idea, and, you know, and they insisted that we do it, and they insisted that if we don't do it, then we're not going to be allowed to pitch at the final you know at the final event, so we put this thing together quickly, you know using the simplest technologies we knew how to do it, and we put it out there and uh, lo and behold, I mean that's the one that now started attracting serious clients, like bigger clients uh, the kind of clients that we didn't really know how we could sell to um, so it like, turned out that-
0: like what type of clients, big corporates or
2: um, so, for example, EcoBank uh, found us online and, you know, created an account on the platform. Uh, then we started getting clients like MCOPA who, you know, who are just starting out. Uh, they want, they needed an, an API that could allow them to send messages. Uh, we had customers like Pesapal, customers like even Ushahidi, like some of the early, you know, some of the, Startups that were actually uh, making waves in the ecosystem uh, really now started using the platform. So companies like Opocopo. Uh, right. So so we actually stumbled on something that you know no one else was building, and but that actually people are willing to pay for. And I think that's where we you know that's where things started making sense. But
0: because before Africa is talking came onto the market, how did software developers integrate their? their infrastructure with telcos i mean was it just they had to do it in house
2: yeah so it was it was a lot of they didn't even do it at all because it just wasn't easy to do it um and the ones that actually did it uh would do it would it would literally be a whole project on the site just to get sms working so you'd find guys getting modems and setting up s m p p gateway, so this is a gateway that allows you to talk to the operator you, you know using their protocols, and then when you now need to get a short code, so short codes were regulated by the government, they still are um so you have to get a license, which is a whole long process, actually it took us a year, and the companies that actually had those licenses would charge you maybe $2,000 just to get the shortcode. So it was, and it was a very opaque space, as well, space. So there was, there was no clarity around how much these services were actually going to cost you. So everyone would kind of say, Hey, you know, we provide these services and if you need the pricing, please send us, you know, send us a message. And then when you send them the message, they start asking you for your business plan. They start asking you for, you know they start trying to fill you out, see how much can you actually pay for this and of course, if the sense that you're a small startup that's trying to like test something out in the market they'd quickly they'd quickly be like you know drop the conversation um yeah. or if the sense that you're a big business, then you know they they'd tell you you need to pay ten thousand dollars or something like that so it was it was very very, very opaque um and I think the world before we came in and said, "Look." We're going to get this license, we're going to get these connections, and then we're going to open them up. So we we decided that you know we're going to follow this model of transparent pricing, uh, transparent processes, like do-it-yourself integrations, no, no games, no tricks. I think that really, really shook the industry up, um, and suddenly companies that previously did not even think about engaging with the operators, suddenly now started thinking about that as part of their strategy. And six years later, it's a very different game, especially in Kenya. Um, we, we, we're still yet to see a lot of movement in many of the other markets, but in Kenya, it's, it's become a very open uh, space and, and, you know, and the operators themselves are not actually now opening up and realizing that there's a massive opportunity there
0: mm Well, and I just want to walk back through some of the basics too so first of all, you mentioned kind of um about regulation, so what type of license or regulatory permissions do you need to enter the space
2: yeah um so so you basically need a license from the communications authority in in the country where you're operating because you and and it's it's actually necessary because essentially what what you're getting is a direct channel to communicate with anyone in the country. Um, So when you get something like bulk SMS or when you get a short code or you get a USSD service, you're essentially uh, being given a powerful platform that can actually be used to reach anyone in the country. Um, And that's even more powerful than the internet because you're talking about SMS. So you can literally talk to everyone in Kenya today on our platform if you wanted to do that. And they would get this message And by the time you're hitting 100,000 people, it's quickly now a political issue. Any client that we have that's doing 100,000 plus, um, the level of KYC and this confidence in what they're doing that you need is, you know, you have to be very, very careful with what kind of communications are going out. So the government has a lot of regulations, and these are around what you can, what you cannot do. Um, around how you empower the consumers to have control over the communication. So, you know, so things like opt out, things like when you can send messages, um, things like who can send messages. So, you know, so the fact that you have to be a business. So these are all things that, you know, they, they kind of take care of. And which means that they actually want to have some kind of recourse in case someone just walks in there and, you know, starts blasting everyone. Uh, of course. That, okay show up at the stadium tomorrow and pretends that or someone sends you a message from M-Pesa telling you to send money to their phone. Um, So even that has to be tightly controlled because you don't want someone to impersonate, you know, a service that could actually start creating, you know, possibilities for fraud and all these other issues. Um, It's actually uh, heavily regulated. I mean, people think payments is regulated, but I I would argue that communications is even more regulated. Um, And it's actually very, very sensitive. Um, Oh, you
0: make a very compelling case for that. No, for sure. Well, and two, and another thing I'd like you to elaborate on, what is a short code?
2: So a short code is, um, so think of it as a phone number, but it's shorter. So it's, it's, it's four or five digits. And it works just like a phone number in the sense that you can send messages to it and it can send you messages back. And in some instances, you can call it as well. So and and the main difference is the short code allows you to plug in your application into it. Um, so when someone sends a message to a short code, you can get that message forwarded to your application. Um, so you so you can you can get notified that this customer has replied to your message on this short code. And that allows you to now build reach uh, more interactive experiences uh, between your business and your customers.
0: Okay. And what type of products are you offering right now?
2: Uh, So right now we offer communication solutions. So we offer uh, SMS. So by SMS, we offer two-way SMS where you can both send messages out and you can receive messages using shortcodes. We offer USSD, which is this interactive technology that. Uh, consumers can use to query your application or register. It's session driven and you can, so you can essentially have a session with a user on any mobile device. We also, we also offer a voice or the ability to build rich intelligent voice applications that use local numbers um so you so you can build an application for example that interviews farmers out in the field and collects their responses over voice we offer airtime distribution so so giving you the ability to essentially top up any mobile phone from your own application so you can think of these cases like if you're running a campaign and you need to reward users um, then you can use the application to send airtime to them. And then finally, we offer payment solutions. So we offer ways for integrating mobile money into your application, uh, integrating bank payments um, and card payments into your application. Yeah, and and um, so that's what we offer now. And we're increasingly looking at uh, what else we can put on the platform to offer to developers.
0: Well, fantastic. And where where are you seeing a lot of demand that, or where is demand really growing? Or is it across the board or...
2: Yeah, um, so SMS is actually the best-selling product. Um, it's easy to understand. It's easy to build. It's easy for developers to add it to the applications. It's literally one line of code, and you can start sending messages using your application. Um, so we find that to be... Very high growth area, and then payments is also increasingly becoming more digitized. So mobile payments is, especially in East Africa, we are seeing a lot of movement there as well. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but you know, bulk SMS, in as much as you know, the data is coming and WhatsApp and all these other services are coming in, you find that um, it's a very effective communication solution, and and it it most most of your customers get to read it immediately, and then the fact that it's regulated means that you can build trust with your consumers. So this, they know when they're getting a message from your business, uh, whether it says m they know that's actually M-Pesa. That's not, you know, someone that created an m account on WhatsApp and is, you know, trying to pretend they're M-Pesa. And yeah, and many, many more businesses are starting to recognize that that's something very valuable.
0: Okay. And, and what are your thoughts on USSD versus kind of more interactive apps for Android, because, I mean, if you look at the data, I mean, there are more, you know, I think there was a data point, I mean, starting in 2016, there are more smartphones being imported to Sub-Saharan Africa, just because the cost of the handset is a lot less. So there is an idea of, okay, well, when the cost of data goes down, more people will, you know, will be able to access Android apps. But still, you know, it's like, you cannot ignore that it's still dumb phones feature phones are still you know dominating kind of the mobile landscape on the continent and usdd uh, us ussd is still really powerful so i mean what are your kind of what are your thoughts on that
2: no i mean I, i think any technology that can reach every phone will always be relevant um so uh you might say the smartphone penetration but you can walk around the street and get 10 of those smartphones and then find out how many of those people have actually know what the Play Store is, um, know where to find an app, know what Android is in the first place. And, you know, versus... Because of their use of mobile money, they have to top up their airtime. So they know how to dial star 144 hash. Or they know how to dial star, you know, whatever, whatever number they need to dial in order to access a basic service. Um, so I would argue that yes, do the, does the Android world provide a much better experience? It definitely does. But there's a lot of barriers still towards the adoption of that technology. Um, and it's not just, the phones getting out there it's also the consumers um, understanding how these phones work and and you're talking about uh, people who grew up without phones at all, so for them, a phone is just something that allows them to receive and make calls and you know they've they've had to be trained on u s s d because that was a technology that operators use in order for them to charge top up their phones and in the end, there's also this cost of data there is network coverage there's there's a lot of other factors that u s s d just doesn't, it doesn't have those barriers at all. So I do think that it's universally, it's a universal technology. It's something that I think Africa has grown up with. It's something that I think will be relevant. I think the largest barriers right now in many of the markets are actually cost. Um, so the cost that the operators uh, slap on the USSD sessions can be prohibitive. I'm thinking of markets like Nigeria, for example. Um, Kenya, the costs have come down quite a lot significantly and um and the use is very robust but i do think that it's it's a great place to reach millions of people and then you can you can always you can always move them up the value chain and you know have them download apps the ones that can actually you know actually comfortable downloading the apps um and and you know but then ussd for me is something that can give you that reach day one where you put a number out there and you know that all the 30 million people in Kenya with mobile devices will actually reach your services.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, and and it's interesting because let's see, you know, you've you've said before publicly that in 2014, by 2013, you had discovered okay, there's uh, a product market fit that you realize okay, indeed, there's a lot of demand for API um, for an API platform. But then in 2014 you hit a stumbling block and you know you said before that you're sweating because everything, you know, in your internal systems was grinding to a halt. So what what was the problem?
2: It was actually it was it was more of a you know a technical challenge. The fact that the the platform that we had built initially While it allowed us to iterate very fast and add new features and uh, be very responsive to clients, it was also not scalable. It wasn't scalable. So we, I think actually we were actually a victim of the product market fit um, in the sense that suddenly we had customers that were sending a lot more messages than the infrastructure that we had designed could handle. So it was a good problem to have. It wasn't it wasn't that internally we were having issues or anything of that sort. It was more of like we actually had now to redesign our entire infrastructure and move it to a newer generation of technologies that, that are more robust and that c- could actually handle the growth and the volumes that we were now seeing on the platform. Yeah, and that that's exactly what we did. So, you know, so 2014, 2015, spent a lot of time just, you know, rethinking a lot of the decisions on the technology side that we had made and essentially uh, ended up with a much more robust, much more scalable platform that. You know, that now to this day has allowed us to grow, you know, orders of magnitude more than what we were doing in in 2013,
0: 2014. And did that require a lot of investment?
2: Yes. So uh, it did. I think it was actually... Easier than uh, it would have been if we had done it later, just because at that time we were actually two engineers in the company, and you know, and we we moved fast because we were two. Uh, sometimes people think that more engineers mean that you move faster, but sometimes uh, when you have too many cooks in the kitchen, like it can actually be harder to like make decisions or execute. So there wasn't so much of a cost in terms of manpower. It was it was more of a cost in terms of the servers that we had to bring in, and you know, um, you know, just how, how big of a plant we were now running. Um, but then the good thing is we were doing this out of customer demand. So this was actually funded by the customers. Um, we didn't have to raise money or, you know, do anything crazy to get there. The customers were actually the ones that were creating this need for a bigger platform. Um, so, yeah, so it, was, it actually worked out pretty
0: well. Okay, perfect. Well, and, and I'm fascinated to know, what is it like to negotiate with the telecoms? Is it hard to get them on board?
2: Definitely. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean we, yeah, yeah, and and because you really have to find your angle. So telcos understand money. Um so it's it's good when you go with a product that they understand and they usually understand uh content. So these so there's a product that allow, allows them to distribute content and essentially charge uh airtime. So they, they bill you on your airtime wallet. So that's that's usually one of the products that we put in front of them. Um, they don't understand developers yet. The tide is kind of slowly changing, but uh, every time we we sit in front of an operator and we tell them, hey, you know, we're here to like uh, help you onboard this 20,000 developers that we have on the platform, invariably the first, their first reaction is, no, we're not going to do that. Um, like, why should we allow this hackers, as they understand them, Mm. uh, to gain access to our customers who, you know, as we understand, they have actually spent a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of resources in acquiring and keeping. So it's never a straight sell and, you know, and different telcos, you know, have, you know, different approaches that we, that we kind of go, go at them with, but, uh, but we understand that that's a challenge that, you know, all these developers would invariably face if they were to go there alone. And it's easier that we're going there with 20,000, you know, accounts on the platform that we can say, look, uh, these are the guys on the platform and these are the kinds of applications that they actually have created. So, you know, so I it's, it's kind of, uh, it's tough, but, but there's, there's a business case for it. And, and now that we, I think we've been able to convince about 20 of them across Africa, you do start getting to that, getting over the hump and getting to that next stage where they now know you and, you know, and, and now that we have partners like uh, IFC and Orange, um, I think that actually now starts making things a bit easier.
0: Right. And did you, did you ever get the sense that they saw you as a threat? Like, oh, you're a middleman or intermediary. You know, why can't we just access these potential customers directly?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's that's always one of the tougher conversations that we have with them and uh you know there's this fear that we'll kind of disintermediate them and but the you know on the other side we're bringing a new a new uh set of customers to them. Uh so we're delivering these customers at a very free for them. Uh, it's literally free for them to get these customers on their platform because we don't go with any special requirements. We don't charge them anything. We just tell them, "Hey, how do you usually engage with partners that want access to your infrastructure?" And then we plug in the same way. But then we plug in and bring all these other customers that can actually build value for their for their consumers. And the other thing as well is we actually our our vision and mission is centered around the developers. Um, so and we understand that it's not in our best interest to actually disintermediate developers from the companies that can actually take them places. So many of our customers in Kenya, for example, are actually Safaricom partners. So you'll find that they actually have agreements with Safaricom that help them with marketing. They help them with, uh, you know, access to Safaricom's networks. Um, but when it comes to, you know, their communications technology or their payments infrastructure, they still use Africa's talking, um, and you find that these are the these are the kind of companies that actually now hit scale really fast, because the networks do have they have a lot of money, they have a lot of reach, they have a lot of experience, um, and their brands are well regarded in the various markets. So the moment you say that, hey, I'm doing this lending solution, uh, customers might be like, ah, oh, we don't we don't you know we don't want to use that. But when you say you're doing that with Safaricom. Immediately the you know there is that sense of trust that comes with that. Um so we do value we do understand the value of that and part of the processes we create within Africa Stocking is how do we actually um allow this allow the operators to engage directly with the with the developers on you know areas where we may not be able to help. So it's it's a win-win really for, for all all the parties involved.
0: No, absolutely. And uh you alluded to the fact that you have started to work with IFC. And uh, that was because in April, Africa's Talking announced that it closed uh, $8.6 million in fundraising that was led by the IFC's venture capital arm. And also Orange, uh, the French Telecom participated, as well as the VC fund uh, from Silicon Valley Social Capital, um, owned by Shamath Palihapatiya. And um, I'd love to know, what do you plan to do with this pot of money?
2: Uh, yeah. So, so I think, so we've, we've actually bootstrapped to this point, you know, other than the, the, I think we took about a small amount of money when we did the accelerator that paid for flights to the U.S. and back. Um, but since then we've actually been funded by uh, money from our customers, which is actually a fantastic way to grow the business. Um, oh, that's it's very, an ideal uh,
0: way. Yeah. That's the ideal way to grow a business.
2: Exactly. It's the cheapest way to do it. But, you know, but at some point you do realize that, uh, I think what we realized was the opportunity is very big. And, you know, and at some point we, we quickly found that we were, we were not able to plan, say, make like six month, one year, 18 month plans because as great as bootstrapping is, um, you also really have to, always watch um, how much money you have left in the bank. So we literally have no debt in Africa stocking at the moment. And, you know, so a lot of our decisions were driven by, today we have, let's say, 5 million in the bank. So we're excited. Uh, Then tomorrow Mm -hmm. we have... One million, we're like, oh, we're sad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Versus you now have some runway, which means that for the next 12 to 18 months, you don't have to keep watching your buck. Um, And you can actually now start thinking strategically and you can say, okay, so let's stop running around uh, let's look at what we've built and let's make some strategic plans and say that in three years or in five years, this is the kind of business that we want to build. So even though for the next two, two years, for example, we're not going to be profitable, that's fine as long as we are making the right moves within the business to actually set us up for, you know, that eventual goal that we are aiming at, which is very attainable. So th- I think I think that's what it allows us to do, so just be a bit more strategic. And and then also uh, you know, the business has been largely driven by the Kenyan operation, which, you know, which has been a huge success. And, you know, and that's what has actually allowed us to get into six more countries, actually seven more countries. And what has actually stopped some of these countries from developing has been the fact that you don't want to take too much risk. Um, so you put two guys in uh Uganda and you're like I need I know I need 5 to 10 people but I will wait for these two guys to like scratch something up and like organically grow their their side of the business and that's also driven by the fact that you you constantly have to watch what you know what you're doing and be very systematic so what this money allows us to do is actually take a bit more risks um and do a bit more in some of these markets that we know are quite promising we know that you know because we've seen how Kenya has evolved um and we know that that's where these markets are headed but We can't have a strong presence as we would like to have in some of these markets.
0: And what's if I can jump in here, what is a promising market?
2: Um, So a a promising market is, for example, Tanzania. Um, So Tanzania has a very vibrant mobile money ecosystem. You know, it's growing fast. Um, It's it's very green in terms of digitization. Um, So they still have a long way to go in terms of digitizing various sectors. So it's a place where, and it, and it has a very competitive uh, telco landscape. Uh, We're more competitive than Kenya, for example, because there's about three operators that have almost equal market share. Um, so that's a very ripe market for us to get into and actually, uh, you know, create a platform that allows developers to now easily deploy services across different operators. So a market like Ethiopia, for example, is very exciting. Um, I think Ethiopia is going through a very interesting phase where, you know, there's a huge population. There's there's an operator that has 66 million subscribers, the largest in Africa, and it's 85 percent rural. So you can imagine the power of technologies like USSD or voice or SMS in such a market where most consumers uh, are still, you know, very much on the non-smartphone uh, end of the scale. And when that market starts to open up. Um, the range of things that you can now roll out would make Kenya look like a joke because then you're talking about a hundred million population that's now starting to consume energy very differently, uh, get loans very differently, consume healthcare very differently. Um, So that's exciting. And of course, Nigeria, um, you know, huge population, very heavily dislocated market because of the payments landscape, but but you can still see that it has a huge developer community. Um, You go for events there and you find one thousand developers show up. You actually get more signups in Nigeria than in Kenya, even though Kenya is making more money. Um, wow! <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So you know, so you can see that there's a real, there's a real opportunity there to engage with the operators who are also very behind in terms of their developer focus compared to players like Safaricom, and you know, and and it's just gonna be a matter of time before that space starts to open up, and um, and I see the same trajectory that we saw in Kenya now playing out, you know, a bit differently in Nigeria because they don't have mobile money, but, um, but I see the same value of uh, technologies like USSD, the ability of that technology. Like you have a USSD, if you have a USSD code in Nigeria, you can reach 160 million mobile devices. That's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, it's, it's astounding. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, you know, so you can see the potential in those markets that we really want to develop and, you know, and see how that goes
0: okay and the last 10 minutes I want to transition a bit to focus more on your thoughts on entrepreneurship and first of all I, I want to know uh, what was your what was one of your biggest failures as an entrepreneur and what did you learn from it
2: Biggest failures. That's that's a tough one because like, I, I think I think we've internalized failure so much that you know we we don't let it dominate our conversation uh, more than you know. So anytime we fail, we we usually see that as a sign of uh, need to realign our strategy. Uh, and I think early on, especially the first two years, there were a lot of failures. So for example, in 2010, there was a failure to recognize that the internet was still not a thing. So we spent a lot of time on. The e commerce angle, and you know, while if you look at e commerce, the first thing you have to build is the infrastructure. So, unless you have the Jumia money where you can actually like throw millions at marketing and hope something sticks, uh, you actually have to look at are there payment solutions that are trusted in this market? Are there communication solutions that are trusted? Uh, What's the logistic framework? Um, You know, what's the internet penetration? Um, So, I think a lot of those early, I'd say the first the first one year two years was spent just making mistakes um and and the thing is and that goes back to failure is i don't really consider it a failure i see it as Something that helped us evolve to the idea whose timing had come. So, you know, so we, we eventually found something that clients uh, that were going to grow to commercially viable or are going to become huge commercial successes were actually looking for this service. Yeah, I, I do think that we also started our expansion a bit too early. So some of the markets I'm talking about, uh, we actually started opening those offices in 2012, 2013 way before we hit product market fit in Kenya. And I do think that that has actually kind of created, made the Kenyan operation a bit too stretched, way more than it should have been. Uh, Because in Kenya, there's a lot of synergies. There's a lot of trust amongst the developer community. There's a lot of customers. So, Um, there was actually momentum to really capture the market 100% and even um, evolve our services. Uh, But we spent a lot of time on the plane to Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Malawi, all these other markets. And I do feel as though that's a bit of a failing because sometimes I feel like of the, we're now about 90 people in the company, the 70 in Kenya, it's very hard for them to really internalize what it actually means to run an operation in seven, eight markets. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. we could have... A bit more strategic, a bit more deliberate, but we again we're looking at how to turn that into an advantage. Um, so how do we turn the fact that we now understand uh, the Malawi landscape into opportunities that can now allow us to grow up very fast in that market? Um, and yeah, and it and it also means that we have uh, maybe ten nationalities plus in in the you know in the company, which is just I mean it's very hard to. Overstates the just what that brings to you know to, to the to the company in terms of diversity of ideas and experiences and, and creating that pan-African sense in the company that sometimes when you wait too long um, can be very very hard to you know to bring back and you know and and, and create.
0: No, I mean have, have you read Ray Dalio's book Principles?
2: No, I haven't. I'm, uh, I'm not the best reader in the in the room, to be honest. Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: okay. Well anyway, but he he's the um he runs the Bridgewater hedge fund. Um and they manage the most money in the in the world really, billions and billions of dollars. And he has a company culture where he wants diversity He wants he wants people it's it's pretty much instilling a meritocracy of ideas so what you're saying is like yeah if you have a diverse diverse employees and you're getting different ideas which that's what you want that's going to create you know a stronger product service yeah management system so it just yeah, it made exactly. me think of that
2: yeah and we, and we we are africa is talking after all um you know the the fact that we have experience in In seven, eight markets now means that we are not scared to go anywhere, uh, actually. So if we need to come to Ivory Coast, which we're doing strongly, like, you know, it's not, you know, it's not something that we need to really worry about. If we need to expand into Senegal, expand into DRC, into like, so we 've seen kind of the full range of conditions and experiences, and all these markets are very unique, very diverse. they all bring like a different strength and weakness to the table, which is very exciting to to actually internalize and then uh, think about how that creating that solid foundation of 7 to 10 markets allows you to now get to the 54 markets that eventually we do want to be in yeah so yeah, so it yeah, it's, it's something that can be turned into a strength
0: well and um kind of on that note of being pan african if you could take a one year sabbatical from africa's talking and you could go anywhere on the continent to learn and improve your business where would you go and why
2: i would actually go to ethiopia you know i i i just i find that I think that uh, I like the way the can. I like first. I like Ethiopians. I, I like how open they are to ideas and and how welcoming and and there's a certain empathy with them that that I find um, is very unique amongst Africans. Maybe it's because they all eat around in, in in a plate and you know. <laughs> they, they, and then I I think we were there for all of one week and we actually got to meet uh, to get a meeting at the Ministry of Science and Technology. Oh, um, wow okay, yeah, that, you, that
0: kind of surprises me because everyone what you can hear about Ethiopia is that the bureaucracy is very yeah you know it's it's kind of stifling and it can be it can be hard to get things done so that's that's fantastic
2: yeah um i think I think the country is changing and and I think there's a very there's, there's going to be a very concerted and organized push by the government to now bring ICT services to the fore and and empower their citizens and you're talking about Hundred million plus uh, in the country. Um, so I think the the potential of some of the some of the ideas that we've actually seen in Kenya, um, some of the ideas that have opened up access to energy, healthcare, education, can have a massive, massive impact in this market. And for me, the government being on board is a huge, huge enabler for this. The fact that the government can actually, you know, like now they're setting up a technology park. And they're doing it very differently from the way Kenya is doing it. So Kenya is setting up a technology park. We've been talking about it for ten years. Um, there's no actual businesses there. Um, the technology park in Ethiopia is maybe a year old, and there's about forty startups in there. You know, there's you know they they say you find guys in this place that's under construction actually working on artificial intelligence or working on all these interesting ideas. Yeah. Uh, so. I think I think I think it will actually evolve in a very, very interesting way. I'd say Nigeria as well has Nigeria has a lot of energy, but I don't think the government is um as switched on as the Ethiopian government is really looking at uh being. So, you know, while I do think Nigeria has a you know bigger market, obviously, and you know, there's already a lot of the ecosystem there is already has a lot of players, there's a lot of communities, there's a lot of energy there. I do see a lot of ideas hitting the wall there, but yeah, but I, I predict Ethiopia will actually, you know, really develop and, and, and for me, it would be interesting to see and maybe be part of that conversation just to understand what it takes for like an African country to really, uh, use technology and leverage technology to, you know, just transform, uh, what happens in a country.
0: Well, and and you're right that it's, gosh, in the last couple of weeks, you almost feel every couple days there's breaking news coming out of Ethiopia that they're opening economic sectors up to foreign investment, private investment, making peace with Eritrea. They ended um, the state of emergency. So it's just, it's, yeah, it's like everyone has their eye on Ethiopia. It's going to be so fascinating to see what happens there. Yeah, yeah. And if you had a billion dollars, which sector in Africa would you invest in?
2: Education. I think I think the biggest thing that will hold back the tech revolution is, and that will turn us into just consumers and not creators of technology, will be the lack of... The, those four years that the brightest kids spend in university literally not getting exposed, uh, learning very old technologies or being taught by lecturers who don't understand where the industry is going. For me, that's that's the biggest uh, problem that we face. Um, And I think we need to think about this for the extremely long haul. Um so, you know, so there's there's the immediate these the are here and now industries of like, you know, energy. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities now, but if we really want to take hold of the tech narrative in Africa, um we really have to create an environment within the education, the training system that allows these geniuses to be challenged, to shine, to gain access to, you know, the best in the world. Um Because, yeah, because I think we have the smartest people. I mean, a country like Nigeria with its 200 million population, if you find the smartest kids in Nigeria. I mean, they, they are as smart as anyone in the world. Um, oh, absolutely. The smartest kids in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is another place. I mean, the smartest kids there are the smartest people in the world. Same thing with Kenya. All these, we have huge populations of young, extremely brilliant people. Even the people working at Africa's Talking, extremely brilliant people that are having to re-educate themselves because they spent four years literally wandering around and um, in a system that's not geared towards the future it's geared towards the past so i think there's a huge opportunity there and that's why companies like Andela, for example are you know are getting the traction that they're getting because they're bringing something to the market that the market actually really really needs so the more that we can do that and actually going beyond the andela model and trying to see how we can actually influence the universities themselves because the infrastructure is already there The, the buildings are there like you know there's a lot of infrastructure that exists but um, it 's more changing the people 's mindset, the lecturers the you know the people that run these universities um, and I think these, with a billion dollars there's probably something that you can do to you know to just slowly start um, planting those seeds that mean that in the, in the next five years we are creating the best technologists in Africa
0: and two last questions: what is conventional advice for entrepreneurs? that you generally find to be misguided or ill-adapted to the needs of african entrepreneurs
2: i think the the overbearing messaging that capital is is super important for me that's that's like that is something that leads people into bottomless pits of okay i can't do this because I don't have, you know, we don't have, we don't have capital. While capital is important, I think the capital that entrepreneurs need in Africa is very little. It's actually just, especially in technology, you just need the capital that allows you to feed yourself. And when we were starting Africa's Talking, that was, that's what we were thinking about. We were like, okay what's the worst that could happen and if the worst happens are we going to be hungry (laughs) and if you're not going to be hungry then by all means keep going so the kind of money that you know that we thought we needed was actually we weren't thinking in the fact you know we need someone to sign a check of like $500,000 before we build this SMS API or you know uh, we need this much runway or um, the important thing was let's focus on the customers Um, let's focus on Finding something that they're pissed off about, um, something that if it goes down, they they start calling immediately, um, and and then you you now start finding the value that you can create. And the great thing with Africa right now, and it's it's actually it's changing fast, but it's it's very cheap to live in Africa. If you try to do this in Silicon Valley, you know just rent enough is will scare you off. You know you're paying like three five thousand dollars a month in rent. You know everyone around you is making. Two three $300,000. Um, so the cost of being an entrepreneur is so high. And that's where the the money comes in. So that's why they're like, you know what, the, I need a seed round of, you know, $2 million just to like get started. But in Africa, I mean, live in your parents' basement and like, you know, <laughs> you can live literally on a dollar a day and, and, and have like all proteins, carbohydrates, vitamins. Um, you know, you can take a bus to work for like, Less than a dollar, so you know, so I think the only thing that's stopping you is just your imagination and and what you can build um, so I, I I find that to be quite sad and and I really hope that people will start moving away from that and really being creative around how they Fund themselves and how they survive in those early years, so that they can get to product market fit, hopefully, and yeah, and and then later, of course, the investor money comes in very handy, especially for accelerating growth and giving you a bit of breathing room and you know everything else and their connections. But I find that if you do it too early, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot.
0: Well, and that's so refreshing to hear, Sam, (laughs) because you're right that there can be. I think it's almost like a broken record of like, oh, well. I can't start a business because I don't have money. And it's like, well, what is even what are you even trying to do? Have you even assessed demand? Do people want to pay for your services? Like all of these questions that are a part of the homework before you even start to think about how much capital you need.
2: Exactly. yeah, And, and you can get a job. I mean, what's wrong with getting a job? Right. Um, I have
0: a side hustle.
2: <laughs> test, exactly. Test uh. the
0: idea, you know.
2: Yeah. So, so I think there is, yeah, there's a lot of ways that can really help us now get around that conundrum of capital that uh, that seems to just tie for things.
0: And to, to to close off, if if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be?
2: I would say sharpen your sharpen your tool sets. Like uh, before before you even think that before you even decide that entrepreneurship is, is what you want to do, I think first, maybe go to an environment where entrepreneurship is actually being practiced. Um, so for example, like get a job at Africa Stocking. Like that that's like one piece of it. Or get a job at a startup that's getting some kind of traction and is getting some momentum. Like learn, learn about how they do things, learn about what kind of challenges they face, get to like lead a team, get to form some connections and just be patient. I find that people think that Uh, you'll make your first million. If you don't make your first million by the time you're 26, 27, then, Oh my God, you have failed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is so misguided. Um, the best entrepreneurs, uh, even globally are in their forties, you know, so these, these, there's life is long. So for me, the fact that I worked for six, seven years, I think really worked to our advantage. Um, the leadership at Africa's Talking has combined experience of 20 plus years, uh, you know, the, the three people at the top. So I find that people really, Neglect the value of that experience get a job at safaricom, you know, they're trying to do stuff Uh, get a job, at you know Some place that's trying to like move things and and you'll find that uh, some of the people that you meet (coughs) Some of the experience that you go through will leave you that much more mature to now uh, Branch out on your own and you know and get something done Um, So I think that's that's really what I would say
0: No, it seems like you're a huge advocate of growth mindset learning from people who have more experience than you and yeah you know focus on learning before you kind of take the dive into entrepreneurship
2: yeah exactly and and, and there's, there's actually there's a natural maturity that comes with just getting older that people really understand like you know you see this old guy and you're like yeah this guy doesn't know what he's talking about but trust me like uh, a 45 year old janitor could school you around very basic things that you know just from his interactions he's probably had lunch with like you know someone that went through some experiences he's probably gone through a lot of a lot more experiences that mean that when faced with certain situations and for me those are that, those are the difference makers it's not really what you've learned in school, it's really what experiences have you gone through? Like, how did you handle uh, a tough situation with um, a coworker or, um, you know, how did you handle the time something didn't go your way or how did you handle success at a certain point that really now uh, give you the fortitude that you need to, you know, to make something work and um, and breakthrough?
0: No, absolutely. That's a great perspective. Well, Sam, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great chatting with you.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAEPodcast. You can also visit YAEPodcast.com For show notes, resources, and information on today's episode, that's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.